people here at the church. Man, I'd encourage you, come. I'm sure after that night, you will feel like you are uh, known and that you know others in our community. Well, let's pray because um, you didn't come here to hear me. I'd imagine, you know, that um, we need the, the help of the Holy Spirit. I need the help of the Holy Spirit because I realize that my words can only go and impact so much. But God speaking through me can do a lot more. And so, Father, we ask, we ask for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit to be on my tongue Holy Spirit, would you impact and fill my words, Lord, that they may touch our hearts and transform us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a question. Have you ever bought something online, let's say? Have you ever bought something? I mean, I imagine it's 2018. If you're real, if you're a human, if you breathe air, you have at one time bought something online. Do I have any takers here? Amazon, kind of a big thing. Kind of a big, you know, kind of a big deal, Amazon is. Um, but have you ever bought something online that you were 100% absolutely sure, you were confident that this thing was going to be epic, it was going to be awesome, it was going to be the solution for the reason or the, the solution to why you bought it, right? But then when you got it, it failed to meet your expectations. Am I alone in that? I feel like that happens to me all the time. Very rarely do I buy something uh, and, and, and when I get that, I, that something in the mail, I'm like, this was a letdown. Funny story, um, when Abram was an infant, uh, he had a hard time uh, falling asleep and keeping himself asleep. That's my son, Abram Temple. He's here running around, um, probably scaring people. We're not sure if he's following Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, we're hopeful and we're praying. If you could pray with me. Uh, you know, we're leaving that in the hands of God. But we bought a hammock, uh, a kind of uh, a hammock for a baby. It's like, it was called a cocoon. Don't get scared. Uh, but we were just desperate. We were at the end of our rope. We're like, how are we going to get this kid to fall asleep on his own? Because we're like those helicopter parents. You know, the moment, like, something's wrong, we're like, hey, Abram, what's wrong? What can we do for you? How can we, how can we help? You know, so we're trying everything um, to get this kid to fall asleep and to stay asleep. So we buy this thing called the cocoon. It, again, it's a hammock for a baby. Um, and we are excited. I mean, we probably dumped just under $300 on this thing. And so we're like, you know, that's how desperate we are. You know, at the time, we're just missionaries doing the house of prayer. We're like, get it. It's, it's, you know, we're watching tutorials and Mother Knows Best videos, you know. And they are, just, they are just ramping this thing up. And so we're like, hey, this is it. This is it. We waited a week and a half or so for it to come in the mail. And we set it up. And I remember swaddling Abram with a giant grin on my face that night. And I'm getting him ready for bed. I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good. I pop him in this cocoon. I just give it a little push. I stick around for a little while. Just watch his eyes kind of fade as the thing's just swaying back and forth. And I start walking to the door. I'm like this. Yes. Yes. Wow. I'm like, no. No. So I come back. And it's really just this event where I'm just like, you know, going to the cocoon, going to the door, walking back. Finally, I'm getting as creative to say, well, maybe he sees me when I'm walking out. So I get down low. I'm like, I'm like military style. I'm like, whoa, you know? And just right before you get to the door, you try to open it and still, wah! And so the cocoon, needless to say, let me down. It, let, it failed my expectation. Can I share some of my personal opinion with, with you this morning? As if 
that would be different than any other Sunday that you hear me speak. <laughs> it's, it's my opinion that there should be some things that should exist between the truly converted. There's, there's just some things that should uh, really be expected or that we should really count on in the church. There's some behaviors. There's some... Uh, uh, behaviors that we should practice, some convictions, let's say, let's call them convictions, right? Some convictions that we have and we hold as non-negotiables, right? We don't compromise in, we don't compromise with, and we don't make excuses for the absence of these things. They're just, they're things that should be in the church. There should be a policy in place, I believe. It's, it's, this is my own opinions, you may not agree, but I believe there in the church there should be a policy put in place where we, under no circumstances, tolerate discord, unforgiveness, and offense. I, I don't know. Maybe I live in some kind of utopia, you know, where I'm just like uh, a land that doesn't exist on this side of heaven. But I just, I just, I don't know. Twenty something years now in church and ministry and leadership, I just feel like we should get this by now. Why does this still exist, right? I mean, listen, uh, more churches, let's just take in the past decade alone, have been ripped apart by offense, dismantled. There are whole parts of the body of Christ who feel no convictions at all to forgive others. It's almost as if it was easier to hold on to their unforgiveness and just justify their offense. Now, I'm a pastor. I've been in leadership now for, it's not, I mean, I imagine there's some in the room that has been in leadership longer than I have, but I've been able to be under and lead different organizations within the church, the youth group, uh, worship teams, now pastoring. I've been in the game for about 22 years, and I can't help but get over this kind of phenomena in the church where we still justify things that are not justifiable. Being offended is so 80s. <laughs> it's stuff that your mom and dad would get disgruntled about. You shouldn't have anything to do with it. It's so old school. It's time for a new breed of people to emerge in the church that love one another with a sincere love, with a love that may be costly, might be sacrificial, meaning the moment you misunderstand me or the moment I may mistreat you, you don't just walk away. We're humans. We're fallen people. The, the, the likelihood of us failing one another is high. Yet we let offense smolder in our communities, in the church. Do you know what the Bible teaches us? It actually commands us not to have any trace, any sign of discord. I don't even know how we get there. Listen, this isn't a new concept in Christianity, right? I mean, I imagine this morning I'm preaching to the choir here, right? I mean, this is all that the gospel prepares us for prepares us to do, right? I mean, um, one of the central recurring themes of the New Testament is forgive as you have been what? 
forgiven. Now listen to me. I am not talking about just turning your eye to real egregious things that are maybe done against you. Maybe you have uh, suffered at the hands of some kind of abuse, sexually or physically. I am not talking about that kind of forgiveness, even though I do believe that kind of, uh, those kind of things, excuse me, can be forgiven. I'm talking more about the micro kind of like, you won't let my daughter sing in the choir kind of like <laughs> stuff. I mean, you, we all laugh, but you would be surprised to see just how much of that attitude has spread like leaven in the church and literally blew things up. Where church went from overnight, you know, 150 to 500 to 25. Just because so-and-so can't sing in the choir. Our pastor said something that hurt my feelings. Listen, the likelihood of me doing that is high. It's very high. Some of you have already experienced that. I'm sorry, okay? But I imagine it would be no different if Jesus was sitting up here and he said some of the things he said in our day that he said in his day to us. I, I, like, I, I like how we all, like, we're, we're like, we're down with Jesus now. <laughs> we got the book. We read great stories. But I tell you, if I was there, I'd probably say, crucify that man. Say that. You're crazy. So I imagine I'm not preaching to the choir. You know, I imagine that this is kind of just like something that I'm bringing back into the picture here. I'm reminding us of as we grow. And we are growing. Look around you. It's June. Church is not supposed to be this big in Cambridge in June. (laughs) June is not a good month. Neither is July and August. It's, It's September. That's when revival comes. Oh, man, we are so predictable, right? But I guess what I'm trying to say is this is simple, yes. Not so much. It's easy to, be, to hear this, let's say, but it's hard to do it, right? And here is where I'm going to become very predictable as a pastor. I'm going to throw John 17 into the picture. I know you guys had something better, right? I'm going to use the prayer of Jesus to make my points this morning. John 17, the famous priestly prayer. Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one as we are one. Let me drink. Can I drink? Let them be one. My people be one as we are one. This prayer really hits home for me today, especially in the current season that I find myself in personally. Uh, also, I feel like it's very relevant for culture, the day in which we live. There's so much at work, friends, trying to divide us politically, trying to divide us racially, trying to divide us socially. There's so much at work. Really, the list is endless. If you have eyes, you see. If you have ears, you're hearing. The climate that's out there today, the divisive climate that's out there today, But again, did you know that the Bible, this is crazy town stuff, because I can't even begin. Acts 2 is so foreign to me, not just because of its miracles that we start to see the church do. It is mostly profound to me and complex to me that I see a group, a massive group of people walking in one heart, one mind, and one spirit. 
I, that's what, that's a miracle to me. I'm like, I, I, the, the, the dead being raised, the, the sick being healed, that's great. I love it, yeah. But the real miracle to me when I read it is like a people that get along with one another. Here it is, and uh, just in case you think I'm lying, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 through 12. This is Paul the Apostle. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. He's, he's meaning to say, I beg you. I beg you, I, I plead with you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. What? I barely agree sometimes with my wife. How am I now going to bring a group of like 300 people into that kind of equation? That you all agree and that there be, what? No divisions among you. But that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me that there has been some quarreling. At the, at, the, at the foundation of every division is this quarreling. Not going to the source, going behind the back, thinking you're being prophetic or something. How do we get that? How, how do we get both in mind, in judgment, a similar are the same convictions. I think it's really, really easy. And it's so easy that I think it's going to offend some of you for me saying this. When you take a body who is shaping their quarreling and their arguments around Scripture and around what the Spirit says, rather than what the social climate, the media climate is, then you have a people that are undivided because they're not looking outside of what they have in Christ. They are looking to the Word, and the Word is shaping those arguments. The Word is shaping uh, their unity and shaping their similar thought pattern and heart pattern. You start incorporating outside influences, and boom, it goes south. Sadly, most of the church is unaware. They're unaware of the destructive outcomes that discord creates. Because it's too busy justifying it as indignation, you know. God has given me this, right? I mean, that's the attitude. God is displeased. And I am his voice of reason and reckoning. I am his voice of displeasure. Heed my jadedness. Or else lose or suffer the loss of my friendship. That's ultimately, you, we may never verbalize that with our tongues, but we think it in our minds. There is not any ounce of offense that would be ever justifiable, I think, in the mind of God. Amen. And we see that because of Jesus. Had there been something that was justifiable, he would have never hung on that cross. <laughs> he would have never said, your will, not mine, Father, innocent. Lamb of God. I can almost hear myself, unfortunately, as I internally process my message, hear myself uh, kind of say, oh, here, here I go again, you know, talking about community and unity again, and even worse, using John 17 as, <laughs> as, my, as my guide, right? So predictable. <laughs> So predictable. You know, what is the big deal about John 17 anyways? And why is it the go-to that every pastor, like, goes to when they preach about this particular subject? What's the big deal? What's to see here that's so remarkable? It's just Jesus praying for the unity of his church. 
to somewhat be similar to the unity he shared with the Father before there was ever a creation, before there was ever a you and me. This is no big deal. It's just, you know, Jesus asking for his church to be unified. I think Jesus very much wants us to think and to see this prayer as a big deal. I don't think we do. I don't think I do. I think he very much desires for this to be seen and felt as a big deal. I believe here, and this is where it's going to get tricky for some of you, but I believe here that Jesus is casting his concerns into the hands of a loving father who is in the business of doing impressive works of, of unity. I mean, after all, look at, look at Acts chapter 2. I do think that Jesus has a legitimate tone of concern. My question is, church, do we share in that concern? Do we even see that concern in John chapter 17? The likelihood is probably, no, we don't. And the likelihood of actually being the church that ultimately is an answer to Jesus' prayer, not the reason for Jesus' prayer. Do you, do you catch that? Ultimately, our hopes is that we, Hilltop, can be a church that responds and is an answer to Christ's prayer. Let them be one as we are one. Or maybe, sadly and tragically, Hilltop will end up as a church that was the reason Christ prayed. But we have to see, I think, the concern first that Jesus had. Now, I mean, Jesus being concerned, that doesn't sound right, does it? You know? I mean, after all, he teaches that we should be anxious for nothing but in all things pray. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. Right? It, it would make sense. It's fair to me to think that Jesus would adhere in practice some of the teachings that he inspired the apostles with. Are you hearing me today? I say this because I often feel like I'm alone in my thought of Jesus' concern here in John 17. I even tried to talk to my wife about it, and she looked at me like, that's crazy. Don't say that at church on Sunday. No, she didn't do that. But trying to convince her was almost like trying... Um, I don't know, I won't even joke. I was going to say something about the Pope, but okay, uh, moving right along. It, it was weird. Bethany looked at me weird, but let's just say Jesus isn't anxious at all. I mean, the thought isn't too far from heresy, right? I mean, the Bible teaches that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that he, in, this is what the Bible says, that he in every respect was tempted as we are, but yet he lived without no sin. So let's just remove the thoughts of an anxious Jesus and let's replace them with a concerned Jesus. And then let's just reference John 17 and see if we can pull out a concerned Jesus in hopes that maybe by seeing a Jesus that is concerned for our unity, we might get concerned and have a bit of like a sobriety fill our hearts. Well, the next time we want to sow discord, the next time we want to talk about somebody behind their back, and call it purging. Or I'm getting ministry by talking about somebody else that's not here. 
I believe by looking at the chapter of John 17 that we will get a sense of the concern of how much Jesus, or I should say, we could get a look at just how concerned Jesus is and how much of a big deal he sees our unity. Let's look. Five things that I pulled from John 17 that I believe illustrate for us or help us see the concern that Jesus has. But let me, before I do this, let me frame it with a similar concern that Jesus had for one of his disciples. Okay? Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Church, church, Satan demanded to corrupt you and tear you apart relationally. I can almost feel that same kind of stern kind of warning in Jesus' prayer. Oh, Father, make them one. As we, I don't think, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think this is just precious Jesus saying some precious words. Father, would you make them one as we are one? That would be a beautiful thing. I mean, of course, he's not from England, so he wouldn't be talking like that. But I, I, I want us to get the feel that I don't think Jesus in any way is just being precious here and just saying some nice little prayers to help us think of unity and think of community. I think Jesus is concerned. So here, and again, framing that by the same prayer that he prayed for Peter. Oh, Peter, listen, Satan has desired to snuff you out. But I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed that your faith would not fail. Oh, we should all pray that Jesus right now, of which he is, of which the Bible says he is, is making intercession for us. Unify them, Father. Bring them together. Make them one as we are one. First, in verses 9 through 11, this is what Jesus says. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. I'm no longer in the world, but I'm going to leave them here. I'm going to leave them behind. I'm coming to you, Father. Keep them. I don't think Jesus was, just keep them. I think he was, keep them, God. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I'm leaving you, right? That's the first thing that I pick up. I'm leaving the disciples, Father, here in this world. I know firsthand, I believe Jesus is saying, I know firsthand how cruel this world can be. And I'm leaving these ones that I love, that you gave me. I'm leaving them. Keep them in your name. Keep them, again, in perfect oneness. That's verse, I believe, 11. You know, it's interesting that Jesus prayed for our unity three times within 10 verses in John 17. That doesn't sound like an intercession that's coming from the heart. And, you know, I prayed for you, Peter. Two, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. I guarded them. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. Don't get lost there. Judas had his role to play. The son of destruction, the sovereign will of God was to use Judas 
to put and sell Jesus to his death, as the scriptures must have been fulfilled. Why? While I was here, I kept them in your name. Now I'm trying to break this down. I guarded them, and as a result, I protected them. But now I'm leaving. I'm not going to be here anymore, Father. Keep them by your name. 3, 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now I'm sold. Here I am sold. I am convinced that Jesus is praying, not just this meek and, oh Lord, but he is praying from a place of concern. Father, keep them from the evil one. Here Jesus gets real close to why he is concerned. He has given them God's word. And because of that, the world will hate them. Why? Because they hated Jesus because he was the spokesperson for God. It's John 15, 18 through 27. In other words, or as Colin G. Chorus puts it in his commentary on John 17, by receiving the word of God that Jesus gave them, they, like Jesus himself, were now not of this world. Now in my words, the world did not accept Jesus. They did not accept Jesus' words. Jesus' words did not give them warm, comforting feelings. Are you looking for warm, comforting feelings this morning? I mean, it's good to be comforting, but it's not all about our comfort. Jesus gets in there and he stirs the water, right? The world doesn't accept Jesus. They hate him. And the gospel, when the word world is used, when it appears, it often means in, op in opposition to Jesus as it does here, it stands for the elements, I guess, if you would, of the Jewish leadership who antagonistically were agitated towards Jesus. They sought to arrest him and wished him dead. Keep me, keep them, excuse me, from the evil one Jesus taught in John 8, 44, that the devil was and still is a murderous lion whose teeth are open and looking for who they can find or who he can find to devour. This is the teachings of Jesus. He was a murderer from the beginning, is what Christ says, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he was the liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. In other words, Jesus is praying that they would be kept from the devourer. And I imagine Jesus is still praying that in his resurrected ministry, seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Fourth, and moving quick, trying to. 16, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so now I am sending them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who, you, who will believe in me through their word. 
here it is, the second time, that they may be one as we are one, just as you, Father, and I are one, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. I'm sending them out, Jesus says, into the world as you sent me. It's almost like Jesus here is a bit of a concerned parent. I imagine, I mean, my kid, uh, he's never seen a public school. He's never, you know, he's homeschooled. Sorry, all you homeschool haters. But I imagine if me and Bethany, or if he ever came to the time where he wanted to go to school, oh my goodness, I'd probably be like, God, I'm not with him. I'm not there to keep him safe, God. I'm usually right there. I'm his wingman. I'm Maverick. He's my Iceman. Top Gun reference. I imagine I'd have some concern, and I think that's what Jesus is doing. Despite the world's hatred for his disciples, Jesus did not pray that they would be taken from the world. Jesus prayed that the Father would protect them. And for the second time, Jesus prays again for their unity. Then fifth and lastly, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Again, that they may be one, even as we are one. I don't know, you know, just as a person of prayer, a person who is, is in the house of prayer, often things that really concern me and weigh upon my heart, uh, I'm somewhat repetitive in my kind of supplication and prayers, meaning I just don't, I don't just voice something that's weighing heavy on my heart once. And I imagine that Jesus in the same tone and tenor is doing the same thing here in the Gospel of John. Again, for the third time, Jesus prays for his people to be one. And I think for the simple fact, again, that Jesus is repeating this, in my mind, I guess, in short, um, shows his concern. Why be so, why, why be so empathetic or uh, emphatic about Jesus' concern here? I really feel until we feel the weight of Jesus' concern, we may never be concerned about a church that is largely ripped apart for some of the most stupidest issues. Small issues. Why am I preaching this today? I think we're at a crossroad. It's a fact that every church, usually the honeymoon stage, is right about where we are at now as a body meaning that everything has been so, oh, glorious, and I love you, and you love me. It's like a show of Barney. I love you. It's like a bad rerun, watching a pink or purple dinosaur run around. Just historically, and just giving some facts, is we are about ready to turn a corner where it's going to get tricky. And maybe it already has. I want to encourage us, and again, I'm going to stop right here because this is a, I think at least another message to follow it up and maybe even another one after that, but I'm sure some of it will be done in the merge as me and Bethany primarily will be speaking on the topic of community and unity. I think we're at a crossroads hilltop. I think the honeymoon is over. And as your pastor, I'm keeping in mind the words of Jesus in John 17, realizing that my commitment to unity my commitment to not allowing discourse, discord in our community is strong. It's strong because I am quickly reminded. You know, it's funny that after Acts chapter 2, it seemed that in Romans, the apostles, the teachers, the people who gave us the New Testament, 
there seemed to be this, this, this change in the church, this, this, this change where you take Acts chapter 2 of this remarkable uh, oneness and unity, this, like, how is this happening, to all of a sudden division and discord. Where, the, where, where oh, I, don't, I, don't, I forget how much of the New Testament is actually apostles, the apostles dedicated to try to bring the church back to unity. You look at it from Romans to Revelations. It's actually, it probably stops right in Jude. Where, where almost in every writing, almost in every message, the apostles are given towards pleading and appealing with the church to be one. Don't let Satan the devourer win. There is nothing too big that you can't forgive, that you can't allow yourself or the one who has offended you to go to them and tell them, you want revival? Let's just start obeying the simple gospel. You want revival? Let's just stop talking behind each other's backs and let's go to the source. If you want revival, let's just start forgiving one another and loving one another. I honestly think that revival is more plausible. I, get, I don't know if I'm using that word right, or it's more possible when we start doing those kind of simple things rather than just lay it all on the foundation of prayer. Like I'm all in. I'm all in for praying for awakening and revival in my, my city and in my, uh, uh, my, my, my uh, nation. But, but man, if I just can't do the simple things that the gospel tells me to do, man, I'm wasting my words. If I can't, if I can't just forgive and love deeply and put away that being easily offended, which was pervasive in the 80s. Ugh, guys, I mean, I remember my mom and dad, they come back with all sorts of war stories about their brothers and sisters. They're like, is this the church? Really? Why would I go? Why would I be part? I can get more community at a bar. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that in pursuing revival and the sending of missionaries, Lord, that we would not forego the simple things. We would not forego and forget that the Bible pleads with us to be one. That the Bible teaches us not to allow discord. Father, I ask that in Jesus' name, that you would drive out those who sow discord. I ask God that you would drive it out, Lord. If it can't be repented of, then drive it out, God. Let us be the answer to Jesus' prayer, not the reason why Jesus prayed. In Jesus' name, amen. Was this all right? I don't care if it was all right. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I love you guys. Listen, guys, we do, we do love you. I, I love you. I know that sometimes 